Welcome to Exit 222, the podcast that puts you in the hearts, in the mind, and on the front line of stories that matter. I'm your host, R.M. McLean. In our first season, we're going to be looking at the story of a small town in rural Oklahoma. By all accounts, Blackwell is a nondescript rural town in America. But what makes it so interesting and what makes it, I think, the perfect setting for season one is that even though the town has only been around for a little over 100 years, that time is compressed and packed full of events and history and experiences That history is so full of lessons that we can glean from the trials and tribulations of this town. And the people of Blackwell, the generations that have lived there, their stories are full of hope and optimism, resilience, courage, grit. But they've also faced despair, discouragement, and neglect. So join us as we discover together what makes this community so unique and its story so important. Imagine you are at the starting line of the most important race you'll ever run in your life. But you're not there alone. You might be there with your family, your significant other. You might be there with friends that you've gone into a business venture, if you will, together. But this isn't a small race. It is what some have described as the largest competitive event in human history, and that is the opening of the Cherokee Outlet. It's a race for land. The the finish line is claims of land that are typically, in, in this case, 160 acres. And when you look around you in this race, you are surrounded by a sea of people from all different walks of life. You may have bankers there, or lawyers, or folks who are laborers, people straight off a ship that came from overseas in search of a better life. And this is the land run of 1893. It's middle of September of 1893. It's warm out. There's dust in the air. You may have been waiting for days, if not weeks, to, you know, taking the time to register and get set for this race. Overall, there are something on the order of 100 to 200,000 individuals involved in this entire race. So when you're, you're at the starting line, it's high noon, there's a pistol that's set to go off that's going to set all of this mass of humanity in motion. And it's not uniform. There are people who, some people are there on an individual horse. There are people there with their wagons and all their belongings in tow. Some people are on bicycles. Listen to one account from that day that describes what it's like to be in the middle of this chaos from the Norman transcript. Quote, Women had their clothes torn off and were trampled underfoot. All decency, self-respect, manhood, and womanhood was laid aside, and the great crowd fought and pulled, shouted and struggled like so many wild animals. End quote. If you look back through accounts of that day, there are even photos, documentation of individuals who rode coal cars and would simply jump off if they saw a piece of land to their liking as those railroad lines snaked their way across Indian Territory. 
So a part of this entire episode is looking at what must have it been like to be in that situation when you're sitting on that starting line and you're waiting for this massive race to, to begin. So I asked some folks who, they're not familiar necessarily with Oklahoma, they didn't grow up there, they weren't born there, but they're generally smart on a lot of different topics. So I wanted to ask what, what might be going through their minds if they put themselves in the shoes of one of these settlers who was arrayed on the starting line, ready for that pistol to go off. So, Hugo, welcome to the show. We're excited to have you. Thanks for having me on. I'm so, excited. So, Hugo, what is the first word that comes to mind when you think of Oklahoma? Flat is the first word that comes to mind. Well, so when I think about Oklahoma, I tend to associate with the, the land the land rush, actually. That's the first thing that comes really? to mind. Yeah, and whether or not that's historically accurately placed or not, it just seems to come to mind about the covered wagon and, you know, people who are just trying to make a make a living, who are just trying to break out of the east and migrate west. That no. and tornadoes. <laughs> sure, I hear you. Uh, but if you're in that moment and you're looking around or you're about to rush forward, what's going through your head? God, I hope I choose the right plot of land. You know, I think about the journeys that these people came on from, as you said, sometimes thousands of miles away and it's like this is the culminating event right this is what they've been living and dreaming about while they're slugging it out trying to gather up money while they're traveling across the country and you know this is the culminating event for them right when they have this this pistol that goes off because think about it it's like a big game it's like the super bowl and just flooding around the plains trying to find the right plot of land but you also got to think if they haven't scouted out the region, they have no idea what they're looking at, right? Maybe they saw some maps. I don't know if any were really available in any high depth. But they've never, like, surveyed the territory themselves, though. So they really don't know what they're going to find, right? I mean, they have a sense, right? Because they've been sitting around in these towns talking to each other. And they probably wouldn't be out there in the first place if they didn't know that it wasn't, like, you know, mountain land or something like that. One of our other contributors to the show, Frank, noted the visceral reaction that he might have. Uh, probably a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, right? Excitement. Shifting gears a little bit during our discussion, we went on to talk about the scale of this event, just how massive it was, and what that means in, in a historical sense. As others have described it, being the largest competitive human event in history. I mean, it's a pretty massive, you know, structured way. Well, semi-structured, but at the, by, the, by the standards of the day, right? Think about it from like a policy perspective. If you're organizing this from like a policy governing perspective, it's like you set some rules, you know, you do your best you can to organize the people and then you let, you let it go. So I would yeah. say it's, it's a standards-based or a govern, yeah. you know, maybe a largest competitive governed event. I've just never thought about it. It's amazing. Yeah, and it makes, I mean, it makes sense. I can, but most, most competitive events, again, are trivial. Like sports now, people get hurt, right? But for the most part, everybody's going home, millionaires. You know, they, <laughs> these people are con- competing to live. So the pistol goes off. You're rushing ahead as fast as you can amid this sea of competitors, everyone vying for the same thing. For example, listen to this description from the Guthrie Daily Leader. Quote, Scarcely had the word, the all-important word, go, rung out, when the dense lines weaved, wavered, and then fell apart, and like a meteorite flash, the thousands of boomers started. End quote. And it's not like when you get to a piece of land, 
that you you see and you want to put a stake down. It's not like that's the end of the story. Maybe someone else has already beat you there. Maybe someone has put down a claim at another end of that piece of property and you somehow have to come to an agreement to either split it or someone has to leave. So all these settlers, these pioneers, homesteaders, another way to describe it, they're all fighting for these parcels of land that have been pre-arranged by the government, surveyed out, counties are demarcated, township sites are laid out. It's all preordained, except for the individuals who actually claim their own land. And so it's not enough just to be the first to claim the land. It's not enough just to, to be there. You have to fend off your land from others. There are fights, murders, all kinds of violent cutthroat tactics that are employed by individuals in order to solidify, really, their claim to that land. So now take that next step. You've run the race of a lifetime. You may have been up for the last 24 hours, doubtful that you got any sleep the night before. It's been hot all day. Your horse is tired. If you were lucky enough to have a horse, maybe you rode the wagon and you know you were a little bit slower. But the point is, it's been a long day. It may have been a long week. And now you finally got to that piece of land and someone else wants it too. So the question that you have to ask yourself, having journeyed from perhaps thousands of miles away through dust and heat, vicious competition, how far are you willing to go to defend this claim that you've just made on a piece of land you know nothing about in a place you've never lived before? So it's another question that I turn say, what would you do? It was a tough Darwinian world back then, right? I mean, you know, think about it. Yeah. Like, people literally just have to, like, you know, elbow everybody in order to stay above ground. These people were tough, right? So I'm guessing that they would probably go to some extreme lengths in order to keep what they perceived to be their plot of land. Particularly, again, it's like not only are they growing up in hard scrabble conditions their whole life, but they scrape and they save, and they have this tremendous journey, which must have taken months to get across the country. Of those 100,000 people that did land rush, I'm going to guess there were a lot of them that had, you know, by our standards of the day, would be just cutthroats, right? And then, you know, they're not going to let some other cutthroat take it from them. If you're in, in that situation, right, where it's everything's riding on this, I mean, you'd probably kill somebody, right? Honestly, you'd probably scare them away some other way, but, you know, you'd really... <laughs> Those people wouldn't think twice about it, right? They've invested everything in it. Their life essentially depends on it. So they're going to do what they have to do to survive. Right. Probably not feel bad about it afterwards. You'd look at it as kind of the cost of doing business. It is what it is. Here it's, oh, I didn't get like, you get beat out for a house. Big deal. You just keep looking for another one, right? Like One of our other contributors to the show, Nick, shared his thoughts on how far he would be willing to go. You're riding everything on this. Your family's out there, bring, you probably had family while you're out on the trip out to this piece of property that you're just now claiming, and you got to deal with little ones and find food and, and, you know, whatever cattle you had at the same time. I mean, you have a lot riding on this, and your entire life and your living and your family is this one plot of land. Uh, so I think I would go pretty far, if necessary, to protect that plot of land, not just for me, but for my family, too. And after all of this, after you've traveled maybe hundreds of miles, thousands of miles, and you've raced against hundreds of thousands of other individuals, and you've 
You've weathered all these things, and what you have is a tract of land and empty space around you. And now the onus is on you. As the settler, the person who has staked a claim to this land, you have to build something out of nothing. And so when I look at these settlers, they're willing to go all in in a territory that's undeveloped, in a state that is known for its wild weather, in an area that's been considered no man's land for decades. Now, the land that these settlers, these pioneers, these homesteaders are presented with, this opportunity to stake a claim, it, it wasn't empty land, right? It belonged to somebody. These aren't just acres, millions of acres, over 6 million acres, something like 20% larger than the country of Israel is what we're talking about. This Cherokee outlet, it's like a deep rectangle that runs from the northern part of the state down to about the middle, top third, and then west over to where the Oklahoma Panhandle begins. It's an enormous chunk of land that's just sitting out there. It's undeveloped for the most part. And that's because it belonged to the Cherokee Nation under something called the Treaty of New Echota. And what that treaty said was that at the time, the Cherokee Nation, who their actual reservation lands where they have their homes and their government, or in the far eastern portions of Oklahoma, whereas the Cherokee outlets sat in the western, northwestern portions of the state. And the point of this land, and the reason it was undeveloped, is the government said, we'll give this land to you under this agreement, but you can't develop it. And the purpose of it is for you to be able to transit to or travel to western hunting lands. And so that's how this parcel of land was undeveloped, available, and as had been the case in the other land runs, the first one being in 1889, there was a movement, the so-called boomer movement, and white settlers had pushed and pushed the government, the U.S. federal government, to open these lands, make them available to white settlers. The argument being that these were surplus lands that the, the native tribes, the Cherokee Nation, other tribes, etc., didn't actually need these lands, and more important to turn them over to white settlers who could then develop the land, farm the land, and turn it into a more productive territory. So that's how this land came to be. In, in 1893, this land run, the Cherokee Outlet, was the largest in American history. So it wasn't the first, it wasn't the last, but it was the largest in American history. Almost overnight, you have towns that start to spring up all over the, the Cherokee Outlet, the new land that's been opened up. And it's out of this vicious cauldron of competition the land run, the disputes over the land itself, people jockeying for positions of influence and power, and sort of what was the, the fading embers of the Wild West, or the frontier, these overnight boom towns pop up, one of which was Blackwell. And it's not the end of the story. It's not as if you just simply say, look, we have a town now, we're going to attract commerce, we're going to have the right mix of retail and residences and we're going to have a perfect town and everything's going to work out great. It doesn't work like that. All these towns emerging at once presented the occupants of the towns with some unique challenges and that would be how do you compete for resources? How do you compete for industry? It's not just enough to have sort of this township site outline, but what is it that's going to set your town apart from others? So I asked Nick, one of our contributors, what's going to be at the top of your list if you're looking to ensure the survival of your town or community during this early stages of post-land run Oklahoma. The competitive nature of businesses, first come, first serve. If you're the first business out there, you have 
a monopoly for a little bit longer than everyone else. The key, I think, what I would try to do is identify what is our resource? What is our commodity here that we can use to you know, put our name on the map? I think the key, again, is just to identify what is the best commodity you can have and put your name out there as quick as possible. And then also, the, better, the sooner you do that, the more money and economics you have in your town. And the more money and stuff you have, the more you're going to have people coming through. So a part of what helped set you know, Blackwell up for success as the years move forward is that they were really successful in attracting railroad, miles of tracks, even a university early on in the town's history, and various other industries. So they built co-ops, grain elevators, many have termed cathedrals of the plains because you could see them rising up above the plains from a distance and that would mark a town much in the same way as Steeplewood, a small community village denoted by a co-op or a grain elevator that rises above the plains. It became the, the heartbeat, really. So Blackwell took shape relatively quickly, and it even hosted its fair share of celebrities. So you had the famed frontier photographer, W.S. Prettyman, who served as the mayor twice. Nearby, you had maybe about 15 miles east of town, you had the famous 101 Ranch, which was the home of the 101 Rodeo that traveled the entire country, putting on shows, horse tricks, shooting tricks, all the skills that were famous in the Wild West and bringing it to American cities as the frontier closed. So Blackwell was not only founded by pioneers, not only surrounded by competitive towns all vying for their share of what they hoped was a prosperous future, but it was also steeped in the legacy and traditions of the Old West and it was transitioning from an era that was quickly closing. It must have been so interesting to be there at that time and see that transition from an open frontier to a boom town and a way of life that was quickly fading into memory. One of the other architectural gems that emerged quickly in Blackwell, or I would say early on in its history, was in 1913 on Easter Sunday, Blackwell celebrated the grand opening of arguably its most renowned structure, known as the Electric Park Pavilion or to some locals, the Palace on the Plains. This building was covered in 500 electric lights, what was described as an architectural celebration of the use of electricity to improve and enhance the lives of Blackwell's residents. Now that may not sound all that spectacular, but put yourself in the shoes of someone at that time. This would have been an island of light amid a sea of darkness. Electric lights were not all that common, and a building covered in them must have stood out from miles away on the plains, and I can't help but think it would have been a spectacular view. And it wasn't long before the pavilion became a focal point for all kinds of events around town, graduations, speeches, other sorts of community festivities. And even looking at the pavilion today, it remains the oldest public building in continuous use in Oklahoma. Now underlying some of these commercial developments was another factor that few, if any, of the original settlers or pioneers could have imagined. In 1897, something incredible happened in Oklahoma. Something that would forever alter not only the trajectory of the state, the Indian Territory at that time, what would then become the state of Oklahoma, but also of the nation. In 1897, the first commercial oil well was drilled in Oklahoma, what was then Indian Territory, about an hour and a half, about 90 miles 
east of Blackwell in a town called Bartlesville. Now, for some of you, Bartlesville may be very familiar. For those who are not familiar with Oklahoma, Bartlesville is a sort of a, a mid-sized city that just sits outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma, a place that was once home of the Phillips Petroleum Corporation. So just four years after the land run of 1893, the opening of the so-called Cherokee Outlet, you have the first commercial oil well that's drilled in Oklahoma, or what was then Indian Territory, and it leads to another massive land rush. Only in this case, the individuals aren't looking for what's above the ground, but what's under the ground. And back then, they didn't have the same ability to look for geologic formations and deposits and where things might be. So they had a lot more limited ability to gauge where that oil might be. And so what you ended up with were individuals who would explore, whether it was their gut feeling or their intuition. They started drilling. And on a massive scale. In those 10 years between 1897 and when Oklahoma reached statehood in 1907, Oklahoma, Indian Territory, what would become Oklahoma, became the world's largest oil producing entity. It's incredible to think about. You have a state that went from land runs, an agrarian society, and in less than a decade, it becomes one of the largest oil producing entities on earth. In Blackwell's case, if you look at oil filled maps, energy production maps from the early 1900s, Blackwell is literally surrounded by oil fields. The most famous or most well known is probably the Three Sands Field, which sat about eight miles south of Blackwell. You can st still drive south in Blackwell and see the remnants of it today. In pictures from the time, it's, it's hard to imagine, but all you see are oil derricks stretching to the horizon. Oil derricks in every direction. And it, the field itself was eight square miles. So you can imagine on the flat plains of Oklahoma, all of a sudden you have these oil derricks that spring up all over Blackwell. It becomes an enormous draw, this gold rush for oil, the black gold, and it forever alters the trajectory of not only the community, but surrounding communities like Ponca City, Cake County itself, and the history of Oklahoma. And if you go there today, you can still see the remnants of those oil barons from the early 1900s. Marlin Mansion sits about 20 minutes east of Blackwell. Even the town of Blackwell itself continues to benefit from the Dave Morgan Foundation, which was founded through Dave Morgan, was one of the early oil barons, and his funds which have been obviously put in trust, continue to help the students of Blackwell through scholarships or, or Blackwell authorities through the procurement of new equipment, vehicles, etc. The fact that Blackwell is still benefiting from an oil rush that happened 100 years ago, over 100 years ago, is incredible. But it shows you the scale, I think, of energy production and how quickly it came about in the state. So looking ahead, Blackwell's just coming off a surge in energy production. The oil boom has happened. The community continues to grow. Population now is somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to 8,000 individuals, which isn't huge, but when you start from nothing 20 years before or 30 years before, it's a pretty big milestone. And soon enough, there are enough industries that anchor the town there, some of which we'll talk about in future episodes. One in particular, the Blackwell Zinc Smelter, but Blackwell, by and large, has become a bustling hub in north-central Oklahoma. Its farmers bring their harvest to the town, into the grain elevators where it's loaded onto rail cars and hauled off to markets. There's industry in town, manufacturing. For a short period of time, there's even a university there. And so you head into the middle of the 20th century with a lot of optimism. 
By the mid-1900s, early 1950s, Blackwell's welcoming a brand new baseball stadium. They host what they proclaim, if you look at advertising material and postcards from around that time, something they proclaim is the largest free county fair in America. This is a pretty big boast, but basically the fall fair, it's free, it's a county fair, and it's enormous. So Blackwell appears to have everything going for it and a bright future. But what we're going to talk about in our next episodes is there's something awful that happens in 1955. It's on May 25th of 1955, to be exact. And it's a very somber and dark day in, in Blackwell's history, but it also, much in the same way, the discovery of oil altered the, the state of Oklahoma's trajectory. May 25th of 1955 leaves a scar on Blackwell that it has been unable to shake for a long time. Join us next time.